Hello, and welcome to Two Friends Talk History. My name is Ophia, and I'm a public historian fascinated by the exploration of history from researchers, practitioners, academics, and more. With so many interesting new things to learn about the past, I'm so glad you're joining me on this journey. With each episode, I invite a guest to discuss an aspect of history that they are involved with or curious about and why it matters in a section called So What? If you would like to find out more about the show, see episode blogs and reading lists, and much more, you can check out my website, archaeoartist.com. Thank you to members who have already joined my Patreon. Your support keeps this podcast going and ad-free. All right, let's get to it. Today, I'm joined by new friend to the pod, expert on poverty, senatorial aristocracy, urban space, and late antique Rome, Dr. Carlos Machado. A huge welcome to Two Friends Talk History, Carlos. Thank you very much, Sophia. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Absolutely. Dr. Machado is a Roman historian whose work focuses mainly on the late antique period with particular emphasis on Rome and Italy. His academic bona fides include a doctorate from the University of Oxford, a Master of Science from San Paolo. Dr. Machado was a fellow at the British School of Rome and a Humboldt fellow at the University of Heidelberg. And this takes us to St. Andrews, where he is currently a lecturer and most importantly, my PhD supervisor. Dr. Machado has published on the evolution of late antique Rome's urban space, the social and religious change through the rise of Christianity, and has just released a new book which explores poverty in late antiquity. And it's quite exciting for those of us who study material culture because the book looks at lots of different facets from the literary to the archaeological remains of lived experience and trying to parse out one of the most challenging social groups that there is to talk about when you're talking about ancient history, which is the poor. So this is going to be a fascinating discussion, and I'm really looking forward to to hearing more about this. And I hope listeners enjoy this topic. So huge welcome today, Dr. Machado. And I mean, I've been talking about getting you on the podcast for quite some time. And I'm so grateful that you agreed to do so because it's really exciting for me to get to interview people who are like firmly established in their careers and doing cool projects and actually leading them to hear how this all works. So that's, it's brilliant for us. Uh, thank you, Sophia. It's uh, it's funny to think of uh, myself as someone who's not early career because I still <laughs> see myself as an early career because there's so much to learn, even in terms yes. of making a project work. But it's uh, it's great to be able to talk about it and to share my ideas and hopefully people will get in touch and I'll get some feedback. Lovely to, to be talking to you. Yeah, and absolutely. And at the end of the show, I'm going to include links to your academia page and your St. Andrews page and contact details. So again, if anybody's curious and has follow-up questions, I'm sure Dr. Machado will be happy to answer. The study of ancient history is done through the study of what is perceived, archaeological presences of monuments and religious and civic buildings and dwellings, and also through textual sources. And so you have a a wide body of resources to tackle ancient history. But again, poverty is kind of tricky. So as somebody researching poverty and antiquity, where does one begin to look? Uh, that's a great question. I think this is the biggest question of all, or one of the biggest it's very difficult because we tend to associate poverty with not having, not being there, not leaving traces, you know. And in that sense, poverty is always elusive. It's always difficult to find. It's always difficult to trace. And our sources, we, we look at monuments like you listed there. We look at monuments, we look at inscriptions, and these tend to celebrate the powerful, yeah. right? They celebrate emperors and senators and even writers. A writer like Tacitus, for example, he would talk about high politics. And when other social groups appear, they appear in a very dismissive or even with a lot of hostility. Mm -hmm. And that is the case for late antiquity too. You have a very important writer like Ammianus Marcellinus, who writes a lot about the city of Rome, writes a lot about the later Roman Empire, about the fourth century. 
And Amianus, he does talk a lot about the common people, but he doesn't say good things. He treats them as uh, the irrational mob. He calls them unpleasant, the uncultured, and uh, he only talks about their vices. So even when the poor are mentioned in our sources, it's in a very biased way. Uh, and that is also the same for Christian texts. Christian texts um, in late antiquity, you know, you have lots of bishops who write a lot about the poor, and we can discuss why they do that uh, a bit more. But they talk a lot about the poor, they talk a lot about giving. But again, there is the question, are they describing the real poor? What are they really talking about? Can I take that as, as evidence for my study? So the poor are very elusive. The poor are difficult to find, difficult to trace. And whenever we find the poor is in a very mediated way. It's through the eyes of someone else. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, that is basically the, the job of the ancient historian, isn't it? We have to make sense with the evidence we have. And we need to find ways of dealing with this. So when a preacher in Milan in the fourth century AD, uh, someone like a Bishop Ambrose of Milan, he's writing and he talks about the poor. Yes, there is a lot of stereotype there. There is a lot there. There is literary fabrication. But at the same time, he is in a sermon when he's addressing the audience that saw the poor, that were mm. walking to the church and saw the poor. So I think we need to start looking at points of contact. We need to start mm. looking at parallels between the sources. We need to understand the agendas and the priorities of these authors. Then we can read their texts mm. with an off caution and make sense of that. It's more complicated when we're dealing with the archaeology because, again, um, we tend to think that the poor are those who don't have anything. Mm -hmm. But in the first place, that is not correct. You know, people live somewhere, people use ceramic material. It's humbler, it's simpler, maybe it's of local circulation, but it still leaves uh, material um, traces yeah. for us to study. And so the challenge is to use all this this material that is actually quite rich. It's much richer than I expected when I started studying to make sense of it. Now, the question I think that, and I'm sorry for stealing your job, oh, please. that should come after that is like, well, what do we understand by the poor? And I think this is a big problem for us scholars, but also people living in 21st century Britain or Brazil or wherever we live. It's the problem of how do we define poverty? I imagine poverty. it shifts over time. It shifts over time, but also shifts depending on what we want to emphasize. Mm. If whoever is listening to this and is a student, a graduate student, we don't tend to associate ourselves. We tend to think like, well, I'm not really seriously poor, but, you know, we do have financial problems. We do yeah. have uh, experiences of having to cut down the budget to the bare minimum, making ends meet and being anxious. And so poverty can mean a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And this is all relevant for us to understand how societies were. Absolutely. And, and you bring up a few really interesting points that I want to explore a bit. So the experience of the impoverished grad student does feel like a juxtaposition of things that shouldn't both be true at once. Because if you're going to postgraduate education at elite universities, that sounds like you are a member of the elite. But I can speak from my own personal experience, not the case. And I know many, many other people can also vouch for the where you're writing grant applications for 50 pence. I've mentioned in other podcasts that the the field of academia is quite challenging to navigate financially and as a career and all those types of things. However, it does give the impression to a lot of people who haven't necessarily gone in that direction that it is a thing of the elite still. 
So that's quite an interesting thing. And then when you mentioned the sort of looking into the absences of objects and how we view the poor. So in downtown Vancouver, there's a section of the city called the downtown east side. It is one of the largest groups of impoverished people living outdoors. When you go to that area, you do see a huge amount of people with all of their worldly belongings that actually can add up to quite a lot. So though they are living on the absolute fringes of society, everything they own is is collected with them. Ultimately, you do see like there is a lot of material culture being exchanged and there's lots of secondhand markets, different types of exchanges for goods. And, and I would even imagine in a historical context where you would have elite products and consumables and things like that, if they end up getting broken or disfigured in some way, they may not be appropriate to display anymore. So that might end up in the hands of somebody who's at a lower socioeconomic place. So yeah, there's a lot of interesting possibilities with the way you're talking about looking at the material culture. Yes, it is true. You know, it's it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm only beginning to learn about really. But I mean, if you start looking at, for example, if you have a modern excavation that pays attention to the stratigraphy of a site, then you start seeing traces of material that wouldn't normally have been noticed by archaeologists Mm. who in the past were more interested in statues and monuments. But you start seeing bones of animals and then you start seeing patterns. You know, you can see there was a butcher working here or you can see it's a small settlement in the countryside. Once you have a finer understanding of the chronology of pottery, that is produced for local mm-hmm. consumption or local circulation. You know, you start seeing, well, okay, this side here, I can, I can see that high-end pottery is not circulating here. Yeah. You start seeing these things. It's not so much to talk about the poverty of a site. The way I'm trying to think about this is how people are finding ways of coping with economic and social challenges, rather than thinking about them as being deprived. Absolutely. And finding the opportunities. Yes, exactly. One thing that appears a lot in the material I'm dealing with, I just finished writing something about this. In the case of the city of Rome, from the end of the 5th century onwards, you start seeing public buildings, but also the ground floor of apartment blocks being adapted Mm -hmm. for industrial use as workshops. And some of them are really big. And you can see that there is some presence of public authorities there. But uh, some of them are very small, very humble, and they're they're producing uh, bread, for example. There is just recently in the excavation of the area behind the exedra of the Crypta Balbi in the Campus Marshes. There are two rooms that were identified as being used for a small production of bread. So you start seeing these things, and, and the traditional way of looking at that is that this is a time of decline, this was yeah. a great space, and now look what a horrible thing they're doing to it. But these are actually people developing new strategies to survive. Obviously, if we're talking about a workshop, we're not talking about the completely destitute. Yeah. These are even harder to trace, but they're harder to trace nowadays. Just one thing to go back to to what you were saying. We we tend to follow the United Nations and the World Bank and the writings of economists in, in trying to define poverty according to what is called the poverty line. So it's a threshold underneath which if your income is below that threshold, then you qualify as poor. But that doesn't work for a lot of situations of very, very hard poverty. You know, mm-hmm. you can meet that threshold. You can actually go above that threshold. 
but you don't put enough money away for savings or you have yeah. expenses, you have someone in your family who is ill. So there are so many situations that make poverty much more than just a financial issue. Mm -hmm. So poverty, one of the challenges of studying poverty is that poverty is a very dynamic phenomenon. And that's exactly what makes it interesting for me, because one of the big issues that scholars traditionally had when studying poverty in especially at the end of antiquity where you have all these christian writers talking about it is that they would always say well they're not really writing about the poor they're writing about the not so poor they're not talking mm. about the terribly destitute so this doesn't count is it like an idealized poor well it's not that it's an idealized poor it's like um working class people mm, okay so when when a bishop like uh leo the great in rome or ambrose of milan or in in the eastern roman empire john chrysostom when they talk about the poor sometimes they will talk about the, the extremely poor who are begging on the streets but oftentimes they talk about people who have a roof they have a dwelling you know they have a job and they're going through difficulties. But the kind of information they give is exactly the kind of information uh, I want because it's, it's, it's connected to this more dynamic view of poverty. Mm -hmm. I'm referring to Ambrose a lot because I think he's really useful for my own research. Ambrose wrote this treaty called the Ophikis. So like Cicero wrote a, a, a treaty with the same title. So Ambrose wrote this treaty for clerics to teach them how to how to be good clerics. Mm. And he talks about the need to pay attention to the poor. And he says that the very poor are easy to identify on the street. And, but we should not neglect those uh, fathers who are in debt and mm. who need money and who are experiencing hunger because they can't pay their obligations or they, they're not being able to work. And he says, these are the invisible poor, and we have to be very careful about them. Interesting. I was just going to say, so what it sounded like is the the work of Ambrose, he's trying to get a more inclusive, or what do you interpret to his... pay attention to those who are poor, but are not visibly poor, right? To pay attention to those who are experiencing poverty, but are not visibly so. So those who are not obviously poor. So, for example, workers who might be ill and not be able to work or a mother whose husband dies and right. she's not being able to make ends meet. And he says, well, you, you need to pay a lot of attention to these people because they also need our help yeah. and they deserve your help. How were these attitudes different from the preceding pagan period or would they be dramatically There's different? Well, there is a big debate about that. It, scholars used to say that it was only with Christians that charity and interest for the poor started to be something relevant in society. And we don't have a lot of texts from the classical period that talk about the importance of giving to the poor. We don't have things like that. We do have texts that do see helping the poor as a value, as a social value. But it's nothing like what happens in late antiquity. You see, mm. in late antiquity, the poor are identified with Christ. So you, you have these Christian texts. It's a tradition that comes from Judaism and from even Near Eastern religious ideas that by helping the poor, you're helping God, you're giving to God by helping the poor. So the texts highlight this much more often. It's very easy to assume that Christianity was a revolution in social practice, but it's very difficult to be certain that that is mm -hmm. really the case. You know, it probably highlighted more the issue. 
Interesting. Uh, but whether it's really completely new thing to care and look after the poor, that we cannot be certain of. Yeah, it just puts to mind like the importance of elites in the aristocracy, and especially in Rome, giving benefactions that would elicit political loyalty or, or things like that. But a lot of times it, it did come in the form of financial assistance or foodstuffs or like there's a lot of different mechanisms they could use to do that. So the reason behind the donations and, and benefactions different, but the acts are still there. So yes, yes, certainly. I mean, the ancient cities in general, they have a very exclusive conception of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So to be a citizen, you need to be a full member of the community. And that excludes the very poor. So gifts that are made to cities, when you organize a banquet to, in honor of an important person who died or institute a sacrifice and festivities uh, and the people of the city will take part in that, you're not really thinking of helping the poor. You're thinking of celebrating yeah. the person who died, celebrating the community and things like this. Even in a kind of indirect way, the poor are helped. So if you're distributing grain in Rome to part of the population, that means that the pressure of the market for grain will be mm. smaller. Yeah. So price of grain might be a bit lower. You mentioned a book I co-edited that came out last year. I co-edited with Filippo Carline, Lucia Cecchi uh, about uh, poverty in Greece and Rome. And there is a fascinating chapter about Greece, about how the food that was used in sacrifices in Greek temples could be used by poor people. They could take some of it. If you allow me to, to do a bit of self-promotion, it wasn't Please. written by me. It was uh, written by Irene Berti, but it's a really fascinating topic. And the same thing will happen in, in Rome, I imagine, and will definitely happen in late antiquity. Interesting. Feel free to correct me, but it, my re remembrance was there was only certain cuts and certain elements of animal and, and produce that was meant for the sacrifice, but those were actually quite good. So presumably every now and then the poor might have like a half decent meal. So. Yeah, well, even if you're just selecting what you're going to sacrifice, you know, if it's mostly like fatty meat or uh, stuff that will will be uh, sacrificed, you still generate a lot of meat, right? I mean, yeah. if you slay an animal. In late antiquity, they don't do that. But the way of sacrificing in amongst Christians is precisely to give your resources mm. to God. And how do you do that? You do that through the poor. And that's in a very Christian fashion you have that logic going on yeah you're mobilizing your resources and in the name of god and that's a very important element in christian practice so you've just mentioned really helpfully how the guidance of these religious texts were asking their clergy to be observant and look for evidence and, and ways they could help people whose poverty maybe wasn't so obvious but that actually brings us to an interesting point and the study of poverty is quite fluid but because I was interested in how people would switch from one level of poverty to another. So what types of social contexts could affect these groups? And maybe is it much the same as now? Or yeah, if, if you can speak to that a little bit, that would be interesting. Right. I got really interested in this topic during the, the lockdown. Reading on the news and seeing uh, this phenomenon, I started kind of um, looking for literature on it. And it was this uh, scary issue of people who are middle class working families people with jobs who are losing their jobs and not being able to pay rent or bills yep. and going into massive debt and uh, the government having to put um, incredibly costly program for assistance which still wasn't good enough so all these issues made me realize that poverty is very present mm -hmm. in everybody's life because 
it could be there. You just need to be sick for a while. You just need something bad to happen. And so there are lots of situations in life nowadays that can make you experience poverty. Mm -hmm. And one thing that scholars of the ancient world agree on, there are not many things, but one of the things they agree on is the fact that most of the population lived fairly close to the subsistence line. Mm -hmm. So most of the population, whether they were living in cities or whether they were living in the countryside, all they needed was a bad harvest mm -hmm. to go into debt, not being able to pay that debt and having to find uh, sometimes brutal ways of making money for it, you know, selling children as slaves or working at horrific and under horrific conditions. Mm -hmm. So so poverty was very present for the vast majority of ancient populations it was something that was always there. Economists talk of poverty drivers, which are the factors that might make you poor, might make you experience poverty. So issues like health, crisis of supply. So if there is shortage of food, prices go up, you can't feed yourself, you can't feed your family, and you have to sell your tools if you're a worker or sell your animals if you're a farmer. Mm -hmm. And that's that. And that's, that's very bad. So these poverty drivers, they are more or less the same across antiquity you know they're really it's not difficult to imagine what they are yeah. i mentioned health i mentioned uh supply and, and food shortages but you know the structure of the family for example is another element that has a huge impact women tend to experience more poverty than men even when they're married and the men aren't experiencing poverty and the women are wars as well mm -hmm. and we know that the ancient world was full of these things yeah. Right. Late antiquity is a period when these issues became really, really big. Mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, all of a sudden. So I'm interested in the period between, say, 300 and 600 uh, of the Common Era. So it's quite late, beginning of the Middle Ages almost. And uh, during this period, you have civil wars. You have movements of population, sometimes involving a lot of violence. Mm -hmm. You have the Justinianic plague you have inflation you have political did i mention political fragmentation it feels a little bit like uh you know britain in 2020 2021 a perfect um, storm a perfect storm and these things make these populations even more exposed to poverty and to these poverty drivers so that's one that's one of the things that i'm really interested in about late antiquity is that it's a period when all these factors that make people poor, all of a sudden they're highlighted by the very social conditions that are developing in that society. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if I could ask, did poverty affect women differently? Because I think it was from your book from last year and the, the discussion about Athenian women working in difficult conditions, but maybe also as uh, prostitutes and how maybe they had bonded networks of communal struggle, but also relationships and, and that kind of thing. But it, it did make me sort of pause that poverty will hit women and men very differently in terms of what they can use to get by in that way. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So I just wondered if, if in your research, you, you see just women experiencing poverty in late antiquity, or if it's basically the same as it would have been in a pre-Christian classical period. Right. Yeah, that is a great question. And actually, uh, so my answer is very impressionistic. If we had this chat in 
two months time i would hope to have a better answer i have promised to write an article about gender and poverty in late antique italy mm -hmm. so this is something that from sociological literature from modern studies of poverty we know very well because of the way women uh, they participate in the labor market wages uh, wage inequality but also the fact that you know in a lot of social contexts is more common for men to leave the family and the women to stay with the kids one thing I was very interested in was in a study about uh, gender and poverty that women in the household, when the household goes through financial difficulties, women are the first to feel the impact of poverty because they cut consumption before yeah. they cut the consumption of the husband and the kid. It's the outcome of a still very patriarchal society. So these are things that I want to explore from the evidence. I have a few hints that I find interesting. So in terms of the participation in the labor market, when you have guilds for example the collegia and the corpora so the guilds of you know builders the grain carriers and things yeah. like this in ancient cities of the roman period it's usually assumed and i think it's correctly assumed that uh, men are the ones participating that uh, there but i mean there might be exceptions but it's usually a, a male thing so that means women are excluded from part of the the labor market so mm -hmm. they don't have all the economic opportunities that their male companions or counterparts have. So one thing that is, is complicated is uh, when you look at Christian texts and they're talking about the very poor, when they're describing beggars in the streets, they do talk about women. Mm -hmm. They do talk about women begging and so on. But usually when they talk about helping and who you should help, it's interesting they tend to give as example men. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing I'm not sure about to what extent are men favored in these practices of social assistance. That's one of the things I want to find out. When the church is helping, they're giving to men and women in the same way. There are women who receive help from the church, widows, for example. Mm. But are these getting the same share of assistance as the other poor? And also there is a big debate whether these widows are really poor or because Christianity values widowhood yes. as, you know, they don't have to be actually poor. So it would be more like an honorific thing. Interesting. Yes. Oh, that's so strange. There's a, there's a really interesting inscription that is uh, from the fourth century. We don't know the exact date, but it comes from a cemetery just in the northern part of the city of Rome, on the Via Salaria. And it, it's a daughter who praises her mother. And so the fact that the daughter commissioned an inscription for the tomb means that you're not completely destitute. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but the daughter says that the mother was only married once. And she has to be prayed for that. And when she became a widow, she joined the ranks of widows of the church. So that's a special category within the yeah. community of the church. But says she never accepted financial help from the church. She seems to have her own money. So, <laughs> so, so she's, she's proud of that. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a thing of like, she is one of the fragile se segments of, but she's not really that fragile because she yeah. doesn't really need that. So it's more of an honorific thing. That is that's really, really cool. Once this article has been published and circulated and things, I'll be happy to connect it back to this and, and repost it because it would be so interesting to see more about this because I feel like, especially as a, a woman and a junior level scholar, there are so many assumptions I have about the roles of women in antiquity. And there's things that like intuitive that may actually be entirely wrong. I'm always kind of interested to see that. I mean, that's what the game of ancient history is about, isn't it? We have all these things that we assume and then we discover how wrong we are. <laughs> and that's one of the things I'm enjoying about this project. You see, uh, up until now, most of my 
work was concerned with the city of Rome and especially with the elite of the city of Rome, wealthiest, the filthy wealthy of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Roman You've done Senate. a 180. So to me, it's it's one of the exciting things about this new project is that I'm looking at a completely different group that was there because yeah. those wealthy people aren't wealthy. They're making money out of nothing. They're exploiting someone. Yeah. So yeah. I was always interested in that, but now it's it's a it's a different thing. There is a lot really that we assumed about the poor. And it's one thing that I, I really like to insist is the fact that there's a lot of work nowadays in terms of trying to quantify inequality, trying mm -hmm. to quantify income and income distribution in the Roman Empire. And it's outstanding work. It's really mm -hmm. important. But poverty is not about that. You can have a stable source of income and that not be enough because of circumstances you live in or where you live. And so we need to be very careful with how we define the poor so that we can look at what's in the margin. I, I love listening to podcasts. I, I was listening to an interview of the author, and I apologize because I can't remember the name of the author, but uh, it's an American sociologist who wrote a book called What America Gets Wrong About Poverty. I think the author, is it Mark Robert Rank? Yes, that's the one. Yes, okay. yes. He gave this figure. He said that over the course of their lifetime, 65% of US Americans experience poverty at least oh, um, wow. for a short period of time. And you think about it, you know, if you're a musician, until you sell a million downloads on Spotify, you are going to experience yeah. poverty. Or if you're a student or if you're not a young academic, the market really is not helping you to find your means to survive. So this has been really helpful. So you're giving us a, a taste of how we can sort of visualize some of the areas that we're maybe generalizing and stereotyping and perhaps overlooking it with a big, let's hang fire on that and see sort of what more research will uncover. It's an interesting segue into my next question, which is how did people in antiquity visualize the poor? Because we've kind of touched on how we do, but how did they? Right. So that's another one of those big questions. So there are obvious signs. Clothing is something mm. that always appears health so people with evident signs of health issues or disabilities so that's mm. something that is pointed out a lot there is a law in the theodosian code from 382 so the theodosian code is this compilation of legal texts and laws that were issued by the imperial court between more or less 300 and 430 and one of the laws preserved there is a law that was sent to the city of rome and it talks about beggars it says that talking about those who are begging but who are able to work because of young age or good health and it says that uh, these people are not allowed to beg and then it says the person who denounces the let's say illegitimate beggar can make that beggar work for him it's crazy so I find this law really interesting because it highlights the fact that uh, apart from extreme cases, there isn't someone who looks poor. I mean, you can be mm. just a, a grunge rocker, yeah. right? You can be a lot of things or you can be poor, but be wearing your best clothes. Identifying the poor is also an exercise of power. Yeah. All right. There is an asymmetrical relationship there. And this law, I, I find it really interesting because it really makes it very explicit. So if I go and I tell the authorities that a certain person in a certain corner of the street is begging, but it's not a legitimate beggar, mm -hmm. and I am a person of good standing in society, I have a good reputation, I have means and things like this, 
my accusation will put that person at my service. So it's a way of social control. It's crazy though. I, I don't know why, but this seems really shocking to me. It seems really shocking, but we do that all the time. Look at social programs and how they work and all the criteria you have mm. to meet to qualify for social welfare and True. this kind of stuff. So maybe the later Roman Empire put things in a more brutally open way, but we still have these issues of exclusion, inclusion. So Christian texts, they talk a lot about clothing. We get that a lot when they talk about wealthy Christians who embrace poverty. So that's mm -hmm. something that appears in texts by a writer like Jerome, who was writing at the end of the fourth century, around 380, 390. He was in Rome, then he went to Palestine. But Jerome talks a lot about the wealthy who embrace poverty and they, they start wearing cheap wool mm. and they start living with the poor. He talks about these very wealthy women who know all the poor and they go around and they help the sick and they embrace the sick and they all know these women. You can see that they're looking for ways of identifying the poor and they're not very different from the ways we have mm. for identifying the poor. But at the same time, they're telling us that other people can do that because being poor, and that's one of the catches that come with Christianity at this time, is that if being a poor means to be holy because you're a creature of God, you're renouncing wealth, then looking poor is also a good thing. Yeah. So there is the biography of this extremely wealthy woman called Melania the Younger. And she's from a very wealthy family. She marries a very wealthy man. and the life describes them as spending their entire existence trying to be poor but they're so wealthy that they just can't get rid of their wealth so they leave rome from italy is the time of the famous sack of rome of 410 and they try to give their property they sell their property for less than it's worth and they give money to churches in north africa then they go to palestine and melania is always wearing rough clothes she's always avoiding wine and meat she's always eating hard bread because she wants to live like the poor the, the whole point is that she never manages to be poor she just owns too much hilarious but also i guess that it is a good reflection of you can i don't mean this in a cynical way but like that you can wear the guise of the poor and some of that goodness some of that holiness rubs off on you in a way yes yes yeah. yes definitely yes well, you know, we, we can praise someone for being very humble and not mm. uh, being ostentatious and wearing normal clothes, whatever that means. And I uh, think we were once able to. I don't feel like that's the trend right now. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's not so worried about not showing their wealth anymore. Yeah, but uh, so there's some threads of similarity between how being perceived as poor can evoke feelings of shame now as then. And did the loss of one's social standing incur the same social stigmas then as now, because from that story, it's a choice. I would assume, perhaps incorrectly, that there is no loss of social standing because she's choosing to act in this way. And it is a very noble thing to do. But if you're not choosing it, am I incorrect in assuming there is some shame or some problems associated with that? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. So much so that, you know, it's a punishment that is present in laws confiscate all the property and send right. this person out. So the person loses everything and that brings infamy. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it is an issue uh, there. There is a, a letter of Pope Gregory the Great. I don't usually refer to these people as popes or the great, mm -hmm. but I think it makes it easier to, to identify yeah. what we talked about. So Gregory in the 
late 6th, early 7th century. And it's a time when Italy has gone through uh, a long war between the troops that came sent by Justinian mm -hmm. and the Ostrogoths that were in Italy, and that destroyed a lot of places. And then the Lombards enter mm -hmm. Italy. And Gregory mentions in one of the letters the need to help this woman of senatorial family. Obviously, I will never remember her name now. But this woman of senatorial family who lost all her properties. And so he does care about the people he write about. It is very clear that, you know, this woman lost something that meant enormously to her. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the texts that present Christians who are extremely rich, giving all their belongings away to become poor and to live like the poor as a way mm -hmm. of enhancing their spiritual qualities. We should not think that it's a joke or it's all a fiction. Some of these people do experience serious poverty. Oh, that's really interesting because this is sort of why we would have somebody be a philanthropist or humanitarian. Why do you get such accolades as somebody who becomes extremely rich when you do good things for the poor versus, I suppose, going to jail and having your money enter the public coffers to then be used in different, you know, like that's a less easy narrative to tell. Yeah, I can see that. No, that's really interesting. Thank you for explaining the nuances of this more because I'm not as familiar with Christian history as I would be with other aspects of history. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I find the early Christian church and how they're navigating all these new social customs and new ways of being quite integral and kind of crazy time, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. So you use just the word that I always think of when I'm looking at this stuff. When you study ancient history, you become familiar mm. with certain texts. And there are some things that you start to assume about that world. And then when you have these texts that say things that all of a sudden are unexpected to you. Yeah. And it's an exceptionally well-documented period. And because of the writings of these Christian writers, we have so much information about uh, social life. Mm. You know, we have to be very careful in using this type of evidence, making sense of it. But at the same time, it's very rewarding to read this material and see possibilities that you, you hadn't thought about before. So yes, crazy sometimes. That's the feeling we have, like, this is just strange. Jerome tells lots of interesting stories. I, I don't think he was a nice man, to put it mildly. He was misogynist and, you know, very rough uh, things he says about women, about pagans, and about the people he didn't like, even Christians. Checks out. But he tells this story about this woman. He doesn't say her name, and she says that it's a wealthy woman, and she is near the Vatican. So we have to imagine at the end of the fourth century, the Vatican is not this area that is dominated by, uh, monopolized by the Basilica of St. Peter yet. Mm -hmm. It's already a very big presence there, but you have other structures, you have yes. farms, you have apartments. There is even the uh, a sanctuary of, of Sibele, no, of Magna Mater uh, uh, near the Vatican. So all sorts of stuff going on but there is this woman who is there she's a christian and she's giving money to the poor she's giving coins to the poor and he says that uh she has the poor organized in a queue and she has her helpers helping to keep things under control yeah. and then there is this elderly woman who gets her coin and she goes away joins the, the queue again and comes again and when she sees this woman, it's not clear whether she recognizes the woman or someone says she's been here already. And she slaps the woman. She punches the woman. Oh, my God. And Jerome is kind of, he's obviously criticizing her. 
it's, it's not clear that he's this is not social reportage you know he's not yeah. telling us what happened he's creating these literary figures but it just shows what a big deal it was that this woman yeah. would come with her servants to help her organize the poor and she's dressed like the poor probably but yeah. she has all the servants and she has a bag big pile of money <laughs> and then and she's giving but don't give too much you're being greedy now yeah. so now you don't deserve the money you deserve a punch in your face <laughs> So you have all these social issues happening yeah. there, which I find fascinating, you know, and you can only get it in late antiquity, really. Absolutely. With a lot more sources that have been documenting, especially women, women's interactions with society. So that's really interesting. So I will yes. be keenly looking forward to hearing more about this. And so that brings us on to the last question. For me, this is a really good moment because I get to ask you, so what? <laughs> Why does it matter? <laughs> this is the question I struggle with, as you know, all the time. So it feels good to be on the so, side of it. So what? It's not like the ancient world can explain our world. You know, there is, it's not a continuity. Poverty there is not poverty yeah. here. But it can illuminate dynamics that are present in our society. Okay, And vice versa, dynamics in our mm -hmm. society illuminate the ancient world. The other thing is it, it helps us to see the importance of adopting a more flexible and inclusive definition of poverty. Mm -hmm. You see, there was an article in The Guardian recently talking about poverty in Scotland. And one of the takes from the article was that the Scottish government has lots of good social programs. So why isn't poverty declining as it should? Mm. And one of the issues there is that poverty is being defined in a very quantitative way, you know, in a very economic financial way. And they're not taking into account the fact that people experience poverty in different ways. Yeah. And these people are suffering with poverty. And I think that looking at the ancient world in this way gives us a sense of the historical depth of poverty and the need to think of poverty in a broader sense. So I think it, it's, it's important for our society. I strongly agree. I think when you first told me you were working on this project, to me, it, it really hit home in a lot of ways. And if one of the outcomes of doing this type of work and to place poverty within a longer historical cycle of human life, really, is to destigmatize it, then I think that would be a huge win. I can't imagine a time where poverty will be cured and that will not be a part of society that exists with us. But mm -hmm. if it were possible for people as they're growing up to be socialized with the understanding that this not only can, but likely will happen to you at multiple points in your life, but just like everything, there's mm -hmm. ways and mechanisms and opportunities that all these changes and, and not to carry it like shame. I think if, mm -hmm. if that could change, then that would be incredible. Thank you. You just answered the question better than I could have answered. So thank you. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Uh, I will use this in my next applications for funding. So Excellent. Excellent. I think that's absolutely true, Sophia. I fully agree with you. I think that's perfectly put. Oh, wonderful. Well, Carlos, it's been such a pleasure having you come on the show today. And I would love it if you could come back at some point. And, and if there's any, you know, future projects you're working on that you'd like to talk about, because you have such interesting work, like you touch on so many interesting aspects and points of the ancient world, and it would be lovely to chat again. So, but for now, thank you so much for coming on Two Friends Talk History. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was great fun. Thank Brilliant. you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the fantastic Dr. Carlos Machado. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion, and I encourage you to check out the accompanying blog post and show notes to find out more about his exciting research. If you have not already done so, please rate and review Two Friends Talk History on Apple Podcasts. It takes just a second and helps people find the show. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you listen to so you never miss an episode. 
You can follow Dr. Machado's academia.edu page where you can download some of the open access articles. But of course, if you have institutional logins, those will be very helpful too. So thank you again for listening. And I hope you guys tune in next time. See you soon with new friends on Two Friends.